Welcome to the first audio version of the Convivial Society. You're listening to the main essay of the 12th installment of 2020, titled Attention, Austerity, Freedom. In the wake of the American failure to contain or manage COVID-19, I've begun to encounter the recurring refrain, we're going to have to learn how to live with this virus. The tone may be indignant, exasperated, defiant, but the general point is the same. The virus is with us for the foreseeable future, and people need to figure out how best to get on with their lives. Regrettably, this is probably correct. A web of interconnected failures stemming from the highest levels of government down to individual citizens have more or less assured this outcome. We can hope for a vaccine to arrive sooner rather than later. We can hope for better treatment options. We can hope the virus unexpectedly fizzles out despite ourselves, as Zainab Tipchaki recently put it. But as she added, hope is not a plan, and we're more than likely stuck with COVID for at least another year. But that's not what I want to talk about here. Rather, I want to begin by discussing how this sentiment, we're going to have to learn how to live with the virus, suddenly struck me as a useful way of framing an approach to the personal, social, and global challenges posed by the present configuration of digital society. Challenges to the conduct of our everyday lives, to the fabric of our communities, and to the political and economic order. So here's the thing. We're going to have to learn how to live with digital technology. We can hope for legislative action and regulation. We can hope for a radical transformation of the industry stemming from a labor insurgency at tech companies. We can hope that a renewed focus on humane technology may bear fruit in the long run. We can hope that digital technology, despite ourselves, doesn't further accelerate the corruption of the political and social order. But hope is not a plan and we're more than likely stuck with the existing techno-social configuration of digital technology for the foreseeable future. Don't get me wrong. Just as I support efforts to develop a vaccine, discover therapeutic options, or restore governmental leadership to manage COVID-19, so too do I find merit in the various efforts I mentioned above to better navigate the social consequences of digital technology. But in the same way that I cannot simply hope and do nothing with regards to COVID-19, so I cannot simply hope for these various measures regarding digital technology to materialize and do nothing myself in the meantime. For one thing, I'm personally ill-positioned to do very much of consequence with regards to efforts either to develop antiviral therapies, for example, or to draft legislation to regulate the tech industry. It's not that I can't do anything at all, of course. I can donate to organizations supporting vaccine research, and I can contact my representative. But these actions will not help me today or tomorrow or next month. Over the last few years, I found myself occasionally writing in defense of a multifaceted response to the challenges of digital technology. Chiefly, this amounted to a defense of individualized efforts to address such challenges from those who insisted that such efforts were unnecessary on the one hand, and on the other, from those who believed them to be inadequate and perhaps even counterproductive. I readily granted that individualized action alone was insufficient to the full range and scope of the challenges in view, 
And I granted, too, that we should resist a consumerist framing of the problem in which better informed ethical consumption would be the answer to our problems. But I was baffled by those who, in their defense of collective and political action, seemed bent on discrediting individualized or even localized action. It now seems to me that COVID-19 presents an opportunity to make an instructive variation of the case I sought to make in these instances. The health threat is collective, and it requires all manner of responses in order to be met. And some of those responses materialize at the level of individual or household choices. Precisely because of the interdependent nature of human society, not despite of it, we are urged to act responsibly with a view not only to our own health, but to the health of our neighbors and our community. Our membership in a community of mutual interdependencies does not diminish the need for personal responsibility. It heightens it. Consider, too, how the same veiled distribution of consequences plagues our response to, to the virus and to the various manifestations of digital infrastructure. I must think of the virus not only as a threat to me, which I may be free to discount, but as a threat to others through me. Likewise, I must think of certain digital technologies in light of the unequally distributed consequences to which my personal choices may contribute. Perhaps I have no reason to fear any adverse effects from my adoption of a front porch ring camera, but I must be able to imagine how the widespread adoption of this technology will have adverse effects for already marginalized members of the community and how it further depletes the fund of communal trust. So here's the paradox. Certain digital technologies should be resisted not merely for their personal consequences, which may be negligible for certain individuals, but for their collective consequences. But for this reason, I should not simply wait for collective action. I should personally resist these tools in order to mitigate the deleterious consequences locally. Will my resistance alone solve the challenges posed by these tools? Obviously not. Should that keep me from doing what I can to confront the problem? Again, in my view, obviously not. Similarly, will my wearing a mask make the coronavirus disappear? No. But should that keep me from wearing one? No, again. I'm reminded of Solzhenitsyn's rule for the common citizen seeking to live with integrity in a repressive regime. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph but not through me. He thought the artist could do more, but this much at least the average person could pledge to do. Ivan Illich's discussion of the question of public versus private ownership of industrial technology is also instructive. It is equally distracting, Illich wrote in Tools for Conviviality, to suggest that the present frustration is primarily due to the private ownership of the means of production and that the public ownership of these same factories under the tutelage of a planning board could protect the interests of the majority and lead society to an equally shared abundance. As long as Ford Motor Company can be condemned simply because it makes Ford rich, the illusion is bolstered that the same factory could make the public rich. As long as people believe that the public can profit from cars, they will not condemn Ford for making cars. The issue at hand is not the juridical ownership of tools, 
but rather the discovery of the characteristic of some tools which make it impossible for anybody to own them. The concept of ownership cannot be applied to a tool that cannot be controlled. Now, substitute Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or Jeff Bezos for Henry Ford. The illusion to be combated is that the tool itself is not at least part of the problem and that if it were only managed more ethically or regulated more effectively, we could retain the benefits it confers while sidestepping its ills. What may be harder to countenance is the possibility that the tool itself may be destructive and corrosive of society, that its ills are essential to its nature rather than accidental. So where does this leave us? It leaves us in the position of having to figure out how we are going to live with digital technologies rather than simply waiting for resolutions we cannot effect and which may or may not materialize. To put this another way, yes, the most important problems we face are far greater than you or me. Yes, they require ambitious collective action. But when that action is not forthcoming, then our response cannot be to do nothing at all. So where to begin? There are any number of possible answers, and they will vary greatly depending on your own circumstances. But allow me to make a modest suggestion. Begin with your attention, because it may be that everything else will flow from this. Attention is something I've written about on numerous occasions, so I'm hesitant about taking up the theme again here. But it's been a while, maybe two years, since I last wrote about it at any length, and I remain convinced that it's a critical and urgent issue. So as they say, hear me out. I won't comment on digital distractedness or social media platforms designed for compulsive engagement or the inability to get through a block of text without checking your smartphone 16 times or endless doom scrolling, as it's now fashionable to call it, or our self-loathing tweets about the same. These matter only to the degree that we believe our attention ought to be directed towards something else that in these instances, it is somehow being misdirected or squandered. Attention, like freedom, is an instrumental and penultimate good, valuable to the degree that it unites us to a higher and substantive good. Perfect attention in the abstract, just as perfect freedom in the abstract, is at best mere potentiality. They are the conditions of human flourishing rather than its realization. David Foster Wallace, who I realize has become a polarizing figure, was nonetheless right in my view to understand attention as constituting a form of freedom. The really important kind of freedom, Wallace claimed, involves attention and awareness and discipline, and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom, Wallace claimed, and I'm inclined to agree. Freedom that's worth a damn is the freedom to attend with care to what matters. Effort is the currency of care, as Evan Selinger so eloquently put it some time ago. And I would add, the preeminent form such effort takes is attention. And yes, of course I'm going to quote Simone Weil again. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Until we realize that what is at jeopardy when our capacity for attention is compromised and hijacked it's not our ability to read through war and peace. It's our ability to care for ourselves, our neighbors, and our world as we should, 
until we realize that, we will not really understand what is at stake. This, then, at least gives us a useful heuristic by which we might think about attention. Does it feel to you as if you are free in the deployment of your attention throughout any given day? Allow me here to speak out of my own experience. I know that it often doesn't feel that way to me. I frequently find myself attending to what I know I shouldn't or unable to attend to what I should. This is not a function of external coercion, strictly speaking. I experience it chiefly as a failure of will, as a form of unfreedom stemming from a regime of conditioning to which I've submitted myself more or less willingly. And I feel the loss. The loss of focus, yes. The loss of productivity, yes. But also the loss of the world and the loss of some version of myself to which I aspire. I find myself needing constantly to ask, what is worthy of my attention? Or better, what is worthy of my attention given what I claim to love, what I aim to accomplish, and who I hope to become? If by our attention we grant the object of our attention some non-trivial power over the shape of our thoughts, feelings, and actions, then this may be one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves. Several years ago, reflecting on this very matter, I wrote about the need for what I then called attentional austerity. Austerity is not a warm or appealing concept, of course. But once again, Illich can help us better frame the matter. Austerity, he writes, has also been degraded and has acquired a bitter taste. While for Aristotle or Aquinas, it marked the foundation of friendship. In the Summa Theologica, Illich continued, Thomas deals with disciplined and creative playfulness, defining austerity as a virtue which does not exclude all enjoyments, but only those which are distracting from or destructive of personal relatedness. For Thomas, Illich concluded, austerity is a complementary part of a more embracing virtue, which he calls friendship or joyfulness. It is the fruit of an apprehension that things or tools could destroy rather than enhance graceful playfulness in personal relations. From this perspective, then, austerity becomes not a deprivation, but a virtue in service of a greater good and a higher joy a virtue we do well to recover. As we draw to a close, I want to add that it is not only a matter of consciously and austerely ordering my attention towards some greater good, of wresting it back from an environment that has become an elaborate Skinner box. It is also good for me to cultivate a form of expectant attentiveness to what is, a form of attention that commits itself to seeing the world before me. The Polish poet Czesław Milos once observed that in ancient China and Japan, subject and object were understood not as categories of opposition, but of identification. This is probably the source, he speculated, of the profoundly respectful descriptions of what surround us, of flowers, trees, landscapes, for the things we can see are somehow part of ourselves but only by virtue of being themselves and preserving their suchness, to use a Zen Buddhist term. Further on in the same essay, he wrote about the wonder that arises when, as he put it, 
contemplating a tree or a rock or a man, we suddenly comprehend that it is, even though it might not have been. This kind of wonder, a wonder at the givenness of things, the sheer gratuity of existence, is perhaps its own reward, as well as the gateway to the love of wisdom, as the ancient philosophers believed. I hear in Miloch's words an invitation, an invitation to step away from the patterns of digitally mediated reality, which while not without its modest, if diminishing satisfactions, can overwhelm other crucial modes of perception and being. The question of attention in the age of digital media may ultimately come down to the question of limits, the acceptance of which may be the condition of a more enduring and satisfying joy. What digital media promises, on the other hand, is an experience of limitlessness exemplified by the infinite scroll. It tempts us to become gluttons of the hyperreal. There is always more, and much of it may even seem urgent and critical, but we cannot attend to it all, nor should we. I know this, of course, but I need to remind myself more frequently than I'd care to admit.